Uh, this morning, we continue in our study on the Proverbs, and today specifically, we'll, we'll be talking about the subject of money. Now, as we've already gone through much of what the Proverbs talked about in previous classes, we know that the subject of money and the subject of finances and wealth hasn't been absent from this study, um, and it's not a subject, specifically money, is not a subject that's uh, separate from what we get from the wisdom literature. Money is not a subject that's separate from the Christian faith either. Oftentimes we think of spirituality and we often think that material is anti-spirituality, but not in the Christian faith. Uh, money is not uh, directly in contrast to spiritual matters. Uh, the scriptures have a lot to say about money. Uh, now, by way of introduction, I want us to begin by reading a few verses in Proverbs. I'm going to show you up here in the projection. Uh, I won't be doing an exposition on any of those uh, passages that we'll read, uh, but what I'm going to do is break off into other subcategories that are related to that. But I want to read these passages in Proverbs just to kind of set the tone um, and the feel of the theology of money in, in Scripture. So let's, let's look at it. Uh, the first one here is Proverbs 21, 5. And it says, Good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. The second one up here is Proverbs 23, 4. Don't wear yourselves out trying to get rich. Be wise enough to know when to quit. You have Proverbs 11.25, which says, The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. And then Proverbs 22.9, Blessed are those who are generous, because they feed the poor. We have Proverbs 3, verses 9-10, through 10, which says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, and with the best part of everything you produce. Then He will fill your barns with grain, and your vats will overflow with good wine. Then Proverbs 22.2, The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord made them both. Amen. Now you'll notice that in Proverbs, there's a mix of positive things to say about money, and there's a mix of negative things that are said about money. So Proverbs, in my opinion, I think is a good place to start uh, when you're developing a, a holistic, biblical theology of wealth and money. Uh, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of verses in the Bible on the subject of money, and because of that, there's several diverse strands of teaching on the subject. So, for example, if you read Genesis, uh, you might conclude that God always prospers his people. So if you're just reading Genesis, you think that God is about making us rich. Um, now, if you read Amos... You might think that all rich people are oppressors. So there's sort of a, a, the opposite view about money, that anyone who has money is an oppressor. Uh, but Proverbs looks at wealth and poverty from many different angles. And uh, because Proverbs is a book of general principles of truth, uh, the principles in Proverbs are more easily transferable to God's people at different times and places, and I think has a more well-rounded theology um, of, of money. And so if you need to go to just one book, uh, to get a good picture of, or a good idea of what money's all about. I think the Proverbs is a good place to start. 
Uh, anyway, based on those different angles that we get from Proverbs, I'm going to be talking about a few things, and you'll see it on your handout. Uh, the first thing there is the medium of money, right? The medium of money itself. The second is money and idolatry. The third one there is what the Bible teaches about wealth in general. The next one is the creation of wealth, how wealth is, is, is gained, how wealth is, is created. The next one is warnings about money. We're going to be looking at warnings about money. And then the last one is stewardship. Okay, so we're going to be looking at each one of those subcategories. Okay, let's begin with the first point. The first point is the medium of money. Now, money is first and foremost a medium of exchange. Okay? And as, as a human society became increasingly more complex, uh, it became inconvenient for humans to barter one commodity or service for another or to exchange a certain quality of labor for a certain quantity of some other commodity. Now, no one invented money, right? No one just said, you know what? I'm going to invent money, and this is the way things are going to be. Uh, it, it was a development, okay? And people who wanted to exchange something found that it was sometimes difficult to find someone who had exactly what they wanted and who, who at the same time, wanted exactly what they had to exchange. Now, think about that kind of society. If we went back to that, we'd be... Uh, having to exchange things, and we, ha we would have to look and see what exactly we need and what they need and have that sort of exchange happen. Uh, now, in order to make exchanges easier, uh, the circle of exchanges uh, wind from two parties or three or more. So here's a sort of a picture of what that looked like, right? Let's just say A, person A, had what B wanted. B had what C wanted. Okay, C, the last guy, had what A wanted, right? And in this way, you have indirect exchanges begin to develop, right? Uh, because someone has interest in what that person is going to gain from the third person. And so how do you get, what, how do you get from C to A? Uh, well, you have indirect, indirect exchanges uh, that are happening there, and money, this medium of exchange, made that much more convenient. And so over a period of time, specialized goods that were difficult to trade were exchanged for goods that were more easily marketed. Right? As a consequence, the more marketable goods became even more marketable because demand for them increased. Now eventually, the most marketable of these goods acquired the function of money, right? a medium of exchange. And many goods have served as money. And in the cultures with which we are most familiar, Money tended to take the form of precise weights of such metals and golds and silver. So oftentimes you'd read uh, in Proverbs or even just in, in ancient history where golds and silvers were the, were the trade. Uh, this, is, this, is what, this is where money kind of uh, takes that role. Now in the sense of a medium of exchange, money is both a social and an economical convenience. Wouldn't you say? <laughs> Uh, it makes complicated economic exchanges more convenient and more efficient uh, than if each person had to barter goods. Uh, money is an important social institution, and a complex society, that, especially one that we live in, uh, simply can't function, at least in the same way, uh, without some kind of common medium of exchange. 
Now, money also allows people to specialize in what they do best, and this increases their efficiency in ways that would benefit both parties. Uh, people no longer have to produce everything that they need in, in, in the way of clothes, food, and shelter. You don't have to build your own uh, housing or clothing or food. They can just concentrate on making money, right, that, that medium of exchange. Right, you don't have to be an expert on all the things that you need in order for you to live uh, sufficiently, right? So you need a house. You don't have to know how to build one. All you have to do is go get a job and make money and worry about or, or allow the other people who are in the business of housing to make those houses. Now, if you have the money, you can just go buy one. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, now, you can concentrate on making the money. And as people specialize in their own way, with, with their own in their own field, uh, their producti productivity increases. It's good for business as well. Okay? Now, in addition to it, or in addition to its use as a medium of exchange, money uh, has acquired other sub-functions, uh, uh, if you will. For example, uh, it's useful to measure value, right? So we have money, numbers, we can measure value. How much is my car worth? Uh, it's worth, in my case, eh, 500 bucks. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so it, it, you see how it, it, it's been a helpful, helpful medium. Money is used as a standard by which we measure the value of of homes, uh, goods, things like that. Uh, when a farmer goes to buy a new truck or a tractor, he doesn't have to think in terms of number of cattle uh, that he'll have to exchange in order to acquire that tractor. He can think just in terms of uh, monetary costs. Now, obviously, it's easier and more efficient to handle transactions uh, when you don't have to worry about all those other factors. Money eliminates the need for that kind of complex uh, thing. Money is also useful uh, as a measure of uh, deferred payment, right? Think about this. When selling something, it is not necessary that the seller demand full payment on the spot, right? Thank God for that, because a lot of us owe banks money for our homes, right? Uh, imagine you have to cough up all of it. Uh, but money as a medium has allowed for us to make partial payments. Like if we had to sh sell our sheep, I, I couldn't cut the sheep in half and give them partial payment. <laughs> You need to have partial payment. If you need to pay partially, you can do that with uh, uh, money. Uh, okay, so you get the picture. So given the important social functions of money, right, it's difficult to understand what many Christians like, uh, like what they have in mind when they denounce money. Okay, and this is, this is an important part of this, this teaching here, that there are such things as Christians out there or theology out there that absolutely denounces money or hates money. Um, and again, the conviction of some Christians is that money is, is, is evil uh, and we need to completely do away with money or stay away from anything related to money. Uh, the conviction of, of them, I think, is it's just simply a bad understanding of what the scriptures teach, right? Uh, and such Christians seem to have little comprehension of uh, economics sometimes um, and uh, how, how it has become a, a social necessity. They also seem unaware of, of the function of this medium and how 
it sustains the, the life that they live in. Okay, now much of the confusion that many Christians have in this area seems to result from their failure to draw a clear distinction between money and money as an idol. Okay, so money as a medium and then money as an idol when money has been made into an idol. Which brings me to that next point, uh, money and idolatry. Okay, I'm going to talk about that. Again, many Christians are right in warning that money can often uh, assume a sinister power over human lives. But whenever this happens, money, something that is uh, ethically neutral, right? It's just, uh, it's just a medium, has become an idol. Uh, often Christians refer to the text where Jesus spoke about money um, and idolatry. They'll point to this text here, right? Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, it's easy to look at that text and say, well, God, he's a deity. He's a, he's a God, right? Because his name is God. Then you look at money, and you say, God and money? What is this, a competition between two gods? Well, no, right? There's only one God. And then there's money. And it's, it's wrong to read that and think that money in, in itself is a god or is, a, is some sort of power. Uh, but, but that's not how we ought to read it, right? Most people interpret Jesus' words in these texts as teaching that money has the potential of becoming a power that can assume control over people. And some, uh, some would look at that and say it's not radical enough. Uh, they, they would view money as almost as if it's a power or a god in and of itself. Um, and they appear to believe that money is, is a personal idol or a personal god with a spiritual force or a power in opposition to or in conflict with God. Now this money god, it's like this money god versus a true god. And they misunderstand money as, as a power that acts by itself uh, and is capable of moving other things. It's autonomous. Uh, it's a law unto itself. Um, and and it, it, that's not the case, right? It's, not, um, it, it, it's really nothing uh, in and it of itself. It's only what people make it, um, make it to be. Uh, a more sensible way of explaining Jesus' teaching here is that because human beings are sinners, they're capable of turning anything into an idol, right? You can take money and you can make it become a god, or you can make it become an idol, uh, depending on how you treat it, what, what your disposition, what the disposition of your heart is towards it, um, how you depend on it. These are, these are character traits that were meant to be for God and not for money, right? Dependency, trust, um, the love of it, you know, all those things, right? Dependency, trust, and love. Those are things that God says you ought to do to me, to God, and not to money. And it's common, especially in today's age, for people to love to depend on, to trust in money. And that's where things go bad. Um, Again, a possible confusion between money and the idol of money may explain some of the bad theological views that many today have held with respect to money. For example, there's false doctrines out there that insist that Christians are committing a sin if they save money for the future, for example. Uh, And again, this is a misreading of scripture and also a very shallow grasp of economics. Uh, this position is similar to those, uh, those Christian anti-intellectuals who used 
who used to advise, advise Christians not to worry about, uh, for example, they, they used to say things like, don't worry about education, God is coming back tomorrow, or God is coming back very soon, don't worry about your education. Uh, and in that same, that same way of thinking, they'd say the same thing about money. You know, God's coming soon, don't worry about money, um, you know, that sort of attitude. Uh, and again, this is a, this is a, a misreading of, of what scripture teach about money. Uh, it never occurs to these people, I think, that uh, the one way in which God takes care of them is through their practice of proper nutrition, first and foremost. So when you think, I don't have to worry about, mon- uh, I don't have to worry about food or money or things like that, um, God takes care of them through these means, right? He doesn't, uh, he doesn't always send manna from the sky. Um, God clearly expects Christians to, uh, to save, to, um, to seek out an education, a biblical education especially. Um, he, he, he expects them to work so that through those means, God can bless them. Uh, in fact, those who uh, sort of have this perspective and they don't go out and labor to gain some sort of money uh, in order for them to provide for their family, the scriptures say that they're worse than unbelievers. All right, and so it's important not to be radical in that way of thinking uh, and to assume that the way that God provides for you on a normal, everyday way is through miracles and uh, unnatural miracles. Um, God provides for you most of the time through ordinary means. And so we see on uh, 1 Timothy 5, 8, it says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So it's important not to overlook the ordinary. Fortunately, most Christians will recognize um, that the primary way that God takes care of them is through these means, through saving, through getting an education, um, through working hard, these ordinary means. This is provision from God. You never want to overlook that. Now, um, just a reminder, I'm going to get into some things, but this is not an economic class. This is a Bible class, but I, I, want, to, I want to mention a few practical implications about this, this theology. Many Christians who become neg- negligent in their duty to be good stewards of their money, all in the name of who cares, God is only concerned with the heart. <laughs> He's coming back to get us anyway, so we don't have to work. We don't have to seek out education. We don't have to do all these things. You know, many of these folks end up needing money regardless, right? And seeking towards others or government to help pay for their neglect. And so all of a sudden, it's then that they start to interpret those sort of handout provisions as God's way of caring for them and providing for them when in fact uh, this is through the use of other people's hard work and hard-earned money. So the point here is to say that, again, those who have this uh, sort of attitude about economics and money, 
that's like, oh, I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to work that hard. God is coming back. You know, God is only concerned with the heart. You, that, that person eventually needs money at some point. They need to eat. They need to provide for their family. There are things that they need. And when God does deliver someone to their life and gives them funds or gives them help, it required that person to work hard. And so nothing is free. That's pretty much the, uh, the, uh, the uh, moral of the story there. Uh, it always costs someone. And of course, we all want free rent, free health care, free education. But no one wants to work for free, <laughs> right? No one wants to work for free. And in fact, the moment that you see your employer making a mistake on your check, right? <laughs> All of a sudden, we want to protest, right? If, the, if your, uh, your boss gives you your paycheck and you see there's a mistake there, they shorted you, I don't know, $5, you better believe you're going to protest. Most people would. And so, again, there's no such thing as free. Uh, we want free, but no one wants to work for free. <laughs> so um, this, this is an important uh, concept here, and it's a biblical concept here, that God blesses those who labor um, for, their, for, for God to pr provide for them. And many of us, including myself, have and will have financial ups and downs. So this is not a shot at anyone who has had uh, financial ups and downs. Uh, that's inevitable, right? And we as a church are here to help uh, each other in times of need, of course. But on the contrary, this is more of a, an address to that faulty perspective on money and work that many people today have developed, have developed from bad theological presuppositions, okay? So uh, the, the Bible, um, the principle that we gain from Scripture is work and gain, work and gain. Working is, is very important. Um, and, and how do we know this from Scripture? We see Paul having this perspective on economics also. It's not just William, right? It's Paul as well. Second uh, Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 12. Can someone read this out loud? Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It is not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. <clears throat> For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Thank you. And so from this, uh, Paul shows us that it's easy for anyone to have an anti-possession, anti-money, anti-wealth attitude if they're leaning on someone else to constantly provide for them wealth and possessions, right? And what these people fail to realize is that anytime someone gives them money or gives them good, it isn't being transferred to them like manna from heaven. It's being given to them by someone else who worked, see? And this is why Paul says in verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And so Paul understood biblical, godly economics, right? 
the economics said nothing is free. There's no such thing. <laughs> you know, someone had to work for it. Someone had to make it. And so with that concept, we, we, we have to keep that as a fundamental principle on how we ought to uh, interact with each other. Right? Now, so the point, the point of point two uh, is that money can be a source of good when it's used for the glory of God and not as an idol. Right? We must keep a biblical understanding in order to avoid the extremes of being anti-money and anti-wealth, which is a bad extreme. Um, which we can call a theology of poverty, right? That there's, there's a, a feeling that you're more godly when you're poor. Uh, in fact, in the Reformation, Luther was against the, the, the monastic life for that reason. He would, he would say that the, 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 the servant or the farmer boy was more godly than the, uh, than the monk that was there in his uh, monastery because he was out there laboring and producing. Uh, and again, this theology of poverty is anti-biblical, right? And, and what I'm, I'm not, don't hear me say that uh, being poor is a sin. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the scriptures, uh, when, if you're poor, that doesn't equate to uh, godliness. Or uh, if you don't, if you have very small amounts of things and resources and money, that doesn't equal godliness and piety. Um, and then there's that other extreme as well, right? The other extreme is uh, making money an idol, right? Which is basically a false prosperity gospel, right? Both of those are unhealthy extremes. And, and as we read earlier in Proverbs, uh, the poor and the rich, God makes them, right? God is the one that orchestrates all things, and he knows, uh, he distributes these things according to his decree. All right, let's look at point number three. What does the Bible teach about wealth? Uh, claims that the Bible condemns wealth or that God hates all rich are clearly uh, incompatible with the teachings of Jesus who saw nothing inherently evil in money, wealth, or private ownership. Now, while Jesus certainly condemned materialism uh, and compulsive uh, quests for wealth, he never condemned wealth per se, right? Jesus did not teach that being rich means necessarily being evil. Right? Jesus did not see anything sinful in the ownership of houses, clothing, and, and other economical goods. Uh, he, had a, he had wealthy friends and followers. You see that in uh, Luke 14.1. Uh, he stayed in the homes of wealthy people. He ate at their tables. You see that in Luke 11.37. A number of Jesus' parables provide insights into his views on wealth. You see in Luke 16.9, in the parable that comes right after that, uh, Jesus taught that his followers should use their resources with the same dedication of good judgment as the unjust steward. Uh, in the parable of the rich farmer, you find that in Luke 12.16, Jesus did not condemn the farmer for making money, but rather for his single-minded concern with his own wealth and his own happiness. Uh, you see that here. I'll read it. It says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of the rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will, stall, I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, the error here was that the, the person there, the, the rich man, had so much stuff that he had to build another place to put all his other stuff. And this brought comfort to him. He felt secure. He felt comforted. He felt like, oh, I'm untouchable. I got everything I need. I don't have to worry about anything. Then God came and called his soul. He, he, he said, today is your last day. This is it. Um, you know, you're, you're ready to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, but now this night your soul is required of you. And all the things that you've prepared for yourself, is, it doesn't prepare you to see me. And that's important. You have to keep that in mind. And so, again, the man was called a fool because he was self-centered. He was a materialist, and he found security in that. Um, again, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, which you find in Luke 16, 19, does not teach that a person's eternal destiny is determined by the amount of possessions he acquires in his life. Uh, it's clear that the rich man went to hell because of, godless, uh, because of living a godless and self-centered life. It, wasn't, it had nothing to do with his riches. Although the riches um, can be a stumbling block in a lot of ways to your pursuit of God, to your growth in God, uh, all those things. Um, but it, it's not the thing that sends you to hell. What sends you to hell is uh, your rejection of Christ, of course, um, and the law that stands against you, which is that you've lived as a sinner, uh, an unrepentant sinner. And so, again, the, the parable in Luke 16 implies that Lazarus was a believer. Uh, and, and any interpretation of the parable that suggests that the poor man entered heaven simply because he was poor obviously contradicts what we know from the New Testament about regeneration. Uh, it's not about being poor that gets you into heaven. Uh, Jesus' teaching stresses human obligations that cannot be fulfilled unless one, one first has certain financial resources. For example, passages that oblige believers to use their resources for God's purposes presuppose the legitimacy of private ownership. Uh, Jesus taught that children have an obligation to care for their parents and that his followers ought to be generous in their support of worthy causes. Uh, so it's, it's rather difficult to fulfill such obligations un unless one has certain financial resources. All that to say is God can't be opposed to financial resources, especially when we see clearly in Scripture that um, oftentimes the way that we bless one another is to help them financially. Uh, one of the ways that we worship God is to give financially, give of our gaining um, and so God, God can't be against that. Um, in fact, he gives it to us for that purpose, to bless one another, to help one another, um, and, and first and foremost, uh, to, to show the grace of Christ as we do these things, and this would lift up the name of Christ as, as we do that. And so these things being commanded show us that God is not absolutely opposed to having possessions, uh, how many of you have been blessed when someone has been able to give you a ride when your car broke down? Well, yeah, amen. Thank God that they were able to afford that car because that helped you in time of need. How about times when you couldn't pay rent or you couldn't pay mortgage or you, um, you know, all these things. Uh, some of us uh, who have had babies, a lot of us who have had babies uh, here in this church, 
we have that ministry where the church gets together and we we send food to that family so that the the mother who just gave birth doesn't have to get up and start cooking um and again that presupposes that the father doesn't know how to cook um but if that's the case if that's the case then then of course we come alongside that family and and we send them we send them food but all that presupposes the fact that we had some of us were able to gain and and make money and have some of these resources so that we can bless one another um and so uh we can't condemn wealth right jesus jesus is teaching offered an important perspective on how people living in a materialistic surrounding should view the material world. What Jesus condemned was not wealth per se, but the improper uh use of wealth. Um yeah, okay. Let's uh let's move on. The next point is uh the creation of wealth. Uh As I said before, scripture does not treat either money or wealth as inherently evil. On the contrary, Christians have a mandate to create wealth, right? We remember from Genesis that God places us in this world to cultivate it and to harness its resources for our own use. Now, man, at least initially, has been created to have dominion in this world, and I'm aware that the fall happened and and we failed in that commission, right? Yet we see that Jesus eventually fulfills the creation mandate, but regardless regardless that urge to control, that urge to direct and manage resources in this world is part and parcel of man's nature and vocation. That's what's natural to man. Man has this desire within him this urge to control, to direct, to manage resources in this world. That's what it means to be a man. idleness is alien to human personality when you're just hanging out and not doing anything that's very foreign to you now have you ever worked and worked and worked and just said i just want to rest i just want to not do nothing <laughs> and so finally you you tell your boss i'm i'm going to take vacation i'm going to take this whole week next week and they say okay we approve you've been working hard and then you go home because you didn't plan the vacation right you were just so tired and overwhelmed of work you go home and the week goes on and it's dragging there's you're just laying around you're not doing anything and you're saying you're telling yourself i could have sworn that this was meant for my rest and yet my soul is not at rest i can't seem to rest even on days off and the reason for that is you weren't you were you were meant to rest but you weren't you weren't meant to just sit around and not do anything and uh rest doesn't mean just not doing anything uh rest is is very much a spiritual thing um you can lay down all day and your soul is not at rest and this is why this is why the lord's day uh was intended to be a day of rest and many of you who work in this church whether you get paid for it or not um you say well the day of rest and i never feel restful <laughs> And I think about myself and I think about all the other leaders to it. We always tell each other, "Man, this is a day of rest." And I do not feel restful. But then I when I get back to work, I want to come back to church and I'm looking forward to Sunday again. And why is that? And the reason for that is that rest is is something spiritual and you gain that rest when you're uh when you're fed, 
spiritually. When you take that day and you dedicate it to the Lord and you read scripture and you're with the brethren um, and you, you take that day out of, out, of, out of the seven days, you take that day to rest and recuperate spiritually speaking. And it may seem like you're doing physical labor, but it's actually the most restful thing you can do for yourself. So, uh, again, God, God did not intend for us to just scrape by. God intended us to enjoy his world. Uh, no Christian should feel a sense of guilt for living in, a, living in a decent house or driving a solid car or wearing a suit uh, or eating a good meal. These are not things that you should feel guilty for, right? My mom used to always tell me, and God bless my mother, but she used to always tell me, you better eat all that food because there's someone out there in that other country that's not eating anything. <laughs> and so I would feel guilty and shove food in my mouth. And I think that's a great principle. But again, we shouldn't feel guilty for the gifts that God has given to us. They were meant to be enjoyed, but they were meant to be enjoyed the right way. Right? You don't eat that steak and say, mm, this steak was good. Uh, praise you, chef. Uh, no, you eat that steak and you, you realize that it went, through, it went from the chef, but it went from uh, God who created the animal, God who uh, hired that person to slaughter that animal, uh, and it went through all these processes that God had ordained and allowed for it to happen so that it could end up on your plate and you indulge in that, uh, that steak. Um, but all things come from God. And God... Uh, God wants you to enjoy everything, uh, and the way that you enjoy everything is to, to recognize that all things come from his hand. And what does this say about work? What does it say about labor? What does it say about wealth? What it says about work and labor and, and wealth is that being that God is the ultimate provider, your boss is not the reason why you have that stake on your plate, or your boss is, is not the reason why you're able to... Uh, provide for your children. Your boss is not the reason why you have that car. God is the reason why you have that car. And when, when you prioritize work before God, you have the order wrong. You're assuming that your employer is God. And so you dedicate your whole life to your employer. You even say things like, I can't make it to church. I can't make it to study. I can't fellowship. I can't... Uh, be fed because I got to go work and, and, and serve, uh, serve my employer. Now, there are exceptions. There are certain situations. That's all to be considered. But in general, in, in principle, we can't change that order. We have to remember that God is the ultimate provider. And so we have to keep that in mind. A Christian should be the best worker. A Christian is a worker that works hard but doesn't overwork. You see that balance, those two extremes? A Christian works hard but he doesn't overwork. How does that work? Well, he works hard because he's working unto God. But he doesn't overwork because his employer is not God. You see? A Christian should be one of the best workers out there. If I was a boss and I wasn't a Christian, I would want to hire Christians. Good Christians. Good Reformed Christians. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, warning about money. Is that the next point? Am I on track? Okay. While there's nothing inherently evil about money or wealth, while creation of wealth is a legitimate Christian concern, nevertheless, the Bible contains a clear warning that money can and often does have a negative effect on people's character and spiritual relationships. Money can be hazardous to a person's spiritual wealth. Now, not the money itself, but how we handle it and how we deal with it. 
while neither the parable of the rich farmer nor Lazarus there in uh, Luke 16, neither one of them condemned wealth per se. They do illustrate the extent to which the pursuit of wealth can damage a human soul. Uh, Matthew 13.22 says, As for what was sown among thorns, this is, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. You see that? The deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. So you see that there is a deceit that can come from uh, money and riches. Right? You think that it, it, it is pointing to the kingdom of God. And it's actually pointing the other way. So we want to be careful on what we make of money. We also read in Luke 18 about how the rich young ruler could not bring himself to renounce his wealth. Um, actually, can someone read that? So uh, the riches weren't necessarily the problem in and of itself. It was the lo- his love for the riches. Um, he, he, he couldn't let it go. Uh, he, he didn't want to follow God. He didn't want to follow Christ. He didn't want to give him his life over. Um, the riches really held his heart. Uh, and this is, this is summarized here in 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Uh, So the mere fact of owning wealth brings this temptation of having a a spirit of arrogance and self-reliance. Success tends to breed a philosophy of possessiveness, things becoming mine, my money, my property, my company, my work. Uh, Wealth gives people a false sense of security. It deadens the life of the spirit. It may even make people unresponsive to the good news of the gospel as we, as we just read. So it's important to be careful with the pursuit. Um, I've had times where I had a lot of money in the bank. Something happens. I, my car breaks down. I got to drop a lot of bills. My uh, AC goes out. I got to spend more money. And then I'm left with hardly anything in my, my bank. And... I remember many times feeling like a weight off when I was broke or the times where I felt the times where I felt that I've lost all this money uh, or I've had to spend all this money and now I have a little bit. And I felt this weight off because uh, I, I felt like I didn't have to wrestle with feeling secure or making money uh, my security. It was it was done. It was it was out of my life. And I was having to live by humble means. And you feel like now I have to trust in God. And all of a sudden you feel closer. Now, this isn't the case for everyone. Um, you know, but in some cases, depending on where you are spiritually, you know, sometimes God does those things to remind us that he's the provider. He's the one. You have to rely on him. Don't, don't uh, rely on your money. Don't, don't 
you know, make it, do it, be a good steward of it, but don't rely on it. That's not your, that's not the end all be all. Um, okay, let's move on. Uh, the doctrine of stewardship, which is the last point there. Uh, human beings are stewards of their possessions, right? And God is the creator of all that exists. And so he, he ultimately is the rightful owner of all things. So when you do make money and you do have money and you do have great possessions, ultimately it still doesn't belong to you. Everything that you have, everything that you own, even your own life, belongs to God and it, it, you're required to steward it well. You're just borrowing from God. So if you keep that in mind, you will learn how to spend. You will learn how to deal with your money, how to save, why to save. That should be the, the guiding motivation. Um, constantly reminding yourself that none of this is mine. My money is not mine. My possessions is not mine. Even my children are not mine. Right? God has given me children. I love them so much. I'm so attached to them. But if I make them my idol, I'm going to be a disservice to them because I will be oppressive if, I, if I'm obsessed with my kids. And the same thing happens when you start loving money so much. You, you start handling it wrong. It becomes your God. And when you lose it, you, you, uh, you lose yourself in a sense because you have banked all of you on this money. Everything that you have has been given to you temporarily to steward it for God's glory. Let's look at Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything belongs to God. And then Job 41.11. Who has first given to me, this is God speaking, who has first given to me that I should repay him? <laughs> Whatever is under the whole earth, uh, the whole Excuse me. <laughs> Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Everything belongs to God. So whatever possessions a human being may acquire, he holds them temporarily as a steward of God and is ultimately accountable to God for how he uses them. Um, Christians have a duty to use their resources in the best way to serve the objectives of God's kingdom. Now I want to read a quote from John Calvin, and then we're almost done here. Uh, this is from... Calvin's commentary in Genesis. I'm going to read this quote. Calvin says, We possess the things which God has committed to our hands, on the condition that being content with a frugal and moderate use of them, we should take care of what shall remain. Let him who possesses a field so partake of its yearly fruits that he may not suffer the ground to be injured by his negligence, but let him endeavor to hand it down to posterity as he received it, or even better cultivated. Let him so feed on its fruits that he neither uh, dissipates it by luxury nor permits to be marred or ruined by neglect. Moreover, that this economy and this diligence with respect to those good things which God has given us to enjoy may flourish among us. Let everyone regard himself as a steward of God, in all things which he possesses. Then he will neither conduct himself uh, dis dissolutely nor corrupt by abuse those things which God requires to be preserved. So everything you have, God has given it to you and he's requiring you to steward it. And you're not going to have them for too long. And they're also going to contribute to uh, negatively to the world or positively to the world. So if you have kids... The way you raise and steward those kids is going to dictate what world you're making for the future. That's one thing. 
It's also going to dictate certain spiritual realities, right? If you raise them up as Christians, if they come to Christ, if they follow the Lord, it's going to affect the future, right? In other words, Calvin's theology of of possessions uh, was very much connected to everyone else. You're, you're You're very much connected to other people. You don't do things in isolation. Everything that you do in private affects everyone else in the public sphere. And so everything that you own, money, possessions, children, all of those things, you're working on them, stewarding them, and they will have effect in the world some way, shape, or form. But the the first thing that we ought to keep in mind is that everything that we do with these possessions, we ought to do it to the glory of God. Uh, And and, um, again, that's what it means to be a steward of what God gives us. Uh, I'm going to close with that. I had a couple of things, but I think, uh, I think you guys heard enough. Um, yeah, any questions or comments before I, I close out? Great job, Bill. No, praise God. Thank you. <laughs> praise God. Okay, let's go ahead and pray. Our Father, we thank you that you've always been faithful in providing for us. We thank you that whatever money or possession you've allowed us to have or to make is exactly what you have set up for us. And and we pray that we would be content in our hearts. Uh, Let us not covet. Let us not want what other people have. Let us be content with what you give us. But at the same time, help us to be good stewards with... with, uh, with our money and our possessions. Give us wisdom on how to properly steward it so that you would be honored by it. Uh, Help us not to love money, but to love you more than anything else. We thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.